Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is my opinion, and I'm going to seek my approval. Do I approve of me? Love doesn't have any expectations. It doesn't seek something in return. It gives because it wants to. At our core, all of us have these feelings of being unlovable and inadequate. And until we start to care for those parts of ourselves, we can't really have the outer successes that we long for. There's money by you, intuition, insight, creativity, higher vision, transcendence. No, money does buy you pleasure and pleasure is good. But it's not enough. We need fulfillment. Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a show to help you pause, relax, reflect, and be curious. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author and entrepreneur exploring the human experience. I interview world-leading thinkers, shaping ideas around the mind, health, spirituality, philosophy, and culture. I'm often reminded that thoughts become things, so we need to choose the good ones. I hope this show helps you to do that too. On the Unwind podcast this week, I have Professor John Aitken, who is a global leader in reproductive biology. With over four decades of dedicated work, Professor John has made groundbreaking discoveries that have revolutionized our understanding of male infertility and paved the way for innovative treatments. He's the author of The Infertility Trap that looks at the long-term consequences of declining fertility globally. I read his book earlier this year and was shocked as I turned the pages. Never did I dream that birth rates dropping would be a serious problem, as I just assumed we were overpopulated as it was. John's research opened my eyes to a very real challenge we face, which is how our declining fertility and lifestyle choices will affect us all long term, and why a very important conversation around this has to happen sooner rather than later if we want to change the direction. I tend to hold few strong opinions in general because the more information I learn about something, I often change my mind and I like to be in a state of mental flexibility that's open to changing their mind as and when new things are learnt. The fertility conversation has been exactly this. It's taken me by surprise. Since I started becoming more interested in the subject, I've learnt things I was so deeply unaware about and I'm questioning the things that I thought I knew before. This interview with John was possibly one of the most eye-opening chats I've ever had because it speaks to the future in a very personal way, but also a macro way. I think it reminds us that we truly are a species that deeply relies on each other. We are so interconnected and the subject of fertility and reproduction does feel very spiritual in many ways and also links in with the psychological, links in with our behavior. It's just a very human topic. So I hope you are enjoying this content that feels slightly different from the normal programming on the Unwind podcast. But I wanted to open up 
to share some of my own personal curiosity at the moment and I hope you're following the journey and enjoying it too. My first question is why did you write this book now? You've been studying this area of biology for a while, many decades, and presumably could see the trends forming for some time. Not for a long time. So I spent the first half of my career working on fertility regulation. I was convinced, like everybody else, that uh, the world's population was uh, excessive. And I worked a great deal with the World Health Organization and other bodies to try to develop novel forms of contraception. And that really uh, continued uh, until, I suppose, the um, late 90s. And then I began to realize that there was a bit of a change. And the reason why I postponed writing the book uh, until now was uh, that I was very busy. I was running a medical faculty in my university, and uh, that took every second of every day. So it wasn't until I retired that uh, really I had the opportunity, and the university uh, very kindly gave me a sabbatical year at the end of my career with them. So I had 12 months, actually coincided very nicely with COVID. So I used this opportunity to pull together, I guess, a lot of reproductive biology and other things as well. I think uh, the challenge in this area is that it's multidisciplinary. Most people approach this from a demography point of view or a sociologist point of view or even an economist point of view. But I wanted to also bring in... um, environmental aspects, the impacts of toxicology on human reproduction, and also started to talk about the long-term fate of our species and the impact of uh, genetics on where we're heading. So put simply, what is happening? It began in about 1964. Since 1964, the rate at which the world population grew started to change. This wasn't because uh, we were dying earlier. In fact, the opposite. We were actually living longer. So you'd think that the uh, population growth would be exacerbated by that. But what tended to happen is that total fertility rates, that's the number of children a woman will have in her reproductive life, those numbers started to tail off and fall. And um, that is a process which is happening all over the world. No country is exempt from this. And it's a product of being prosperous. So as soon as uh, prosperity hits, as soon as uh, any country embarks on a sort of journey of socioeconomic development, one of the first things that happens, and it really is one of the first things that happens, is that the number of children born go down. We have dramatically seen a decline in total fertility rates in uh, the tiger economies of Southeast Asia. So uh, in Taiwan, uh, Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, and in China itself. In all those countries, total fertility rates are now well below the levels you need to keep the population constant. And all of those countries are now uh, experiencing a population decline. In the next two or three decades, the population of China is going to halve. I don't think the the socio-political consequences of that and indeed the economic consequences of that have really captured the imagination of the people in general. But that's what's going to happen. There are a number of countries that before the end of uh, this century will see their populations halve. Uh, I'm talking to you now as an Australian, but uh, in Australia and Britain and America and other countries in Europe, we're kind of buffered against this in some ways because 
we have very attractive countries that people want to immigrate to. So we paper over the cracks of our lost fertility by just inviting more and more immigrants to our shores. And uh, Australia now has a very aggressive policy of inviting immigrants to try to uh, get population numbers up where they need to be. We are already seeing a skilled labor shortage. So the solution to that is uh, try to open up the doors to uh, other people to come to our country, which is a good idea in the short term. But uh, the point of my book is, actually, this is a global phenomenon. So whilst we might have invited lots of Chinese people to Australia and America and the UK, and the same with Indians and now with Africa, that can only last for a short period of time because the populations in all those countries are declining as well. So we're in, uh, I call the book an infertility trap, because uh, this is not some sort of temporary inconvenience. This is uh, actually a bit of a trap. And if we don't realize what's happening, um, make the appropriate adjustments. It's going to be a bumpy ride as we go forward. Well, you write, if we do not recognize the reality of our situation and react accordingly, an uncontrollable decline in population numbers is likely, we'll be unable to reverse. So essentially what you're saying is that the fertility crisis could lead to the human race's extinction. That is a possibility, and we can't discard that possibility. As I say in the book, you know, no no species is immune from extinction. And sometimes the things that make them, uh, that extinguish a species are very unexpected. A fungal disease has wiped out more than 90 species of amphibian, for example. But in our case, it's this demographic transition, this global change in fertility rate shows no signs of abating. The uh, United Nations has painted a very comforting picture where they say, oh, yeah, now what's going to happen is population levels will decline. And then when we get to a roughly replacement level, which is the level you need the number of children you need to produce to keep the population constant. At that moment, uh, it will all slow up and uh, we will go through a very um, comfortable leveling off of the rate of population decline and everything will be fine. Well, there is no evidence to support that at all. And in those countries which are at the most advanced state of this population decline, like Taiwan, like Singapore, like Hong Kong and Korea and China, There is no sign of this abating. The decline in fertility seems to be inexorable. And, uh, you know, there are a number of factors that are contributing to that. And some are short term and fixable and others are long term and much more difficult to reverse. When I have spoken about this crisis that, to be honest, has only recently become conscious to me, I have been completely unaware of these trends up until about four months ago. And I'm often met by environmentalists laughing at the idea that this could be a problem because, you know, as you write, population is scheduled to reach 11 billion by 2100. And this feels just an enormous amount of people that the planet can't even handle. So often when I say, yes, we've got a really troublesome birth rate, people are saying, no, that's absolutely brilliant. The environment needs this. How do you respond to that? Well, uh, two things. One thing is your figure of we're going to get to 11 billion will never arrive. We're not going to get there. Population has already started to decline. And so... um, we are at the beginning of a kind of roller coaster ride where we're at the top of the slope and we're about to go down. I think there are two things to this. One is, yes, of course, I, everybody, would love to see a global population that shrinks. That would be great. 
but you have to do it in a controlled way. If it's an uncontrolled descent, then everything is going to suffer. Australia and to some extent Europe is very dependent on the Chinese economy. If the Chinese population halves, that economic growth will not be there for us to uh, base our economies upon. The geopolitical consequences of a massive decline in the Chinese population haven't really been sought through. And as we go down this slope, one other thing that changes is the age structure of our populations change. So we are not just a shrinking society, we are an aging society. And what happens then, and you already see it in all advanced economies, there's an age care crisis. We already see that. And what's happening is you have a small group of young, hardworking people like yourself who are having to generate the resources to in order to support the swelling hordes of the elderly who need to be looked after. And there are only two or three ways in which you can generate the economic growth necessary to support that elderly population. You can uh, encourage more and more women into work. That's just not something we should be doing for reasons of equality. That's something that we actually need to do economically. We need to encourage more and more women into the workplace. The trouble is the more women you encourage into the workplace, the less likely they are to have children. And you just uh, go down in a self-perpetuating cycle. You can encourage people to work longer. We can't afford a part-time at the age of 65. Uh, it's going to have to be 70 or 75. And you can see in France what happens when the French president tries to introduce an extension of the uh, working life before you initiate your, your get returns on your pension. So that doesn't go down very well, but it's an absolute necessity. We've got to do that. We have got to encourage more and more disabled people into the workspace. We can't afford to let any human resources go to waste. And encouraging disabled people into the workforce is very important. Again, not just for ethical reasons, but for reasons of economic necessity. So, you know, these are all the things that we have to try to do if we are to stabilize the descent of the population. And if we don't, okay, we will end up with a small population and that will have benefits in terms of the uh, damage we do to the planet. But it will be at the expense of all of us. It will be very difficult to uh, see how we're going to manage that decline if we don't prepare ourselves for it. Describing this crisis a bit like us on a roller coaster, I thought it was so well written. And you write, just imagine you are on the lift hill section of the roller coaster ride and have climbed the tallest peak of the track. Your rate of ascent has gradually slowed as you reach the top of the climb and you are now poised, heart in mouth, white knuckle grip on the grab bar, ready for a steep descent into oblivion. <laughs> you know, when you truly start to understand, like you explain in the book and you're explaining now, it very much captures the moment that we are all in collectively very, very well. But as you write, we're on the edge potentially of oblivion. And yet this doesn't seem to be at the top of political agendas whatsoever. Why do you think the fertility crisis is so silent, and yet we are all incredibly familiar with the climate crisis, both of which are threatening our species. Yeah, but it took us a long time, a long time to get familiar with the climate crisis. And it took a long time for people to acknowledge that there was a climate crisis. And still people, you know, even though the evidence is all around us, some people are still in denial about that. The major problem is that the changes I'm describing will not take place over a nice, neat political cycle of three to five years. 
as a species, we have a very short attention span. And uh, the fact is that the changes that I'm describing are going to take place over decades. And we don't deal well with those kind of changes. And that's why it was so difficult for the climate debate to get traction, because it's a long-term thing. And people, they buy into uh, phenomena, events that they can see before their very eyes and are going to happen tomorrow. It's uh, difficult enough to uh, acknowledge that something's going to happen in two or three years' time. But to say that this is going to happen in three decades' time means that most people just say, well, okay, somebody else can deal with that. That's not my concern. That's the problem. The problem is that this is a long-term change and by the, and a bit like climate change. If we do nothing and we just let the, you know, the roller coaster go down the slope, then uh, by the time we realize, oh, no, the world is in a population crisis, it will be too late and we won't be able to reverse it. So that's the point of the, the trap element of the, uh, of the book, that we have to try to understand that this is going to happen and react to the changes that are occurring before we get led into that trap and it's too late to do anything about it. As you said, immigration it has got many flaws to, and it's such a temporary solution. Which countries do you think will be the first ones to realise that? So certainly in Australia, we know already we are heavily dependent on immigration. And immigration is, another, is an interesting thing, going back to your previous point, because immigration is the quick fix. So the politicians love it. You know, all we do is we change our immigration policy and next year we can have 100,000 extra people coming into Australia and we fix the problem for their political cycle, but we haven't actually fixed the problem for the long term. That's the kind of issue. So in Australia, if I think of the university system, for example, the university system has uh, developed exponentially on the... um, wings of uh, Chinese students. So Chinese students came to Australian universities and British ones as well, but they've gone all over the world uh, in order to acquire their their, uh, education. And already we are seeing that that flow of students has stopped. It's been aided and abetted by COVID, of course, and that's another danger to the immigration policy is that wars and pandemics and things get in the way of it. But uh, I think all developed countries, the UK, Australia and uh, the USA, are all so heavily dependent on immigration that they're all going to be the ones that are going to, well, I won't say suffer, but are going to have to work hard to maintain the rates of immigration they'll need to sustain their populations. And we started off with the Chinese. The next population is the Indian population. So the Indian population, birth rates in India have come down as fast as they did in China. But the Indian population has momentum. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is um, in in China, we had the one-child family policy, right? Mm. It was introduced in 1980, and it achieved absolutely nothing. The fertility rates had declined very rapidly before the one-child policy was introduced. And when it was introduced, actually fertility rates went up slightly and then continued their inexorable decline. But it wasn't without effect. The major consequence of the one-child family policy is that there are no young girls coming into reproductive age in order to sustain the population. Mm. 
Whereas in India, they had no such policy. There are 180 million girls under 14 years of age in India, and they are going to be entering the reproductive cohort over the next 20 years. And even though, even though total fertility rates in uh, India have fallen to below replacement, for the next 20 years or so, that population is buffered by its young females coming through to reproductive age. So there will be a time when we can still invite uh, immigrants from India to our shores. And then it's Africa after that. And people think, well, no, in Africa, very high fertility rates because they're very, you know, most of the sub-Saharan countries are very poor. But if you actually look at the data, uh, even in Africa, the fertility rates have now just started quite a steep decline. And uh, they are on the same journey as everybody else. They're just starting that journey a bit later than other countries. And ultimately, I actually worked it out a couple of days ago for an article I was writing. By uh, 2068, the African population, the birth rates in, in Africa go into the negative. So the, the uh, total fertility rate goes below replacement level. So we've got a few decades before those countries hit a, a reproductive crisis of their own, during which time we'll be able to invite people from those countries to our shores. But ultimately, we have to understand that this is a global crisis and uh, the immigration fix is good for politicians because it's quick, but it's bad for the species because it's unsustainable. So what year do you anticipate the changing demographics to really start having a noticeable consequence on the general population? And what do you think the first signs are that, you know, the everyday person will start to notice in their own life? So first of all, it's already here. In Australia, we have uh, a major shortage of skilled labour. Saw a television program today where uh, uh, some very ingenious engineers in, in Australia, we need the skilled labor, we need labor to harvest crops more than anything else. So we have, you know, fantastically productive areas of Australia where we're producing lots of fruit and vegetables, and we just don't have the people to pick them anymore. So uh, there is a massive shortage of skilled labor. And one of the responses is to uh, well automate everything. The Japanese are doing everything they can to use, uh, they're building robots to uh, try to compensate for the lack of numbers by increasing the efficiency, having more, more automation in their industries. People are already responding to this. So uh, skilled labor shortage, the aged care crisis, I've already mentioned that. That is everywhere. That's in China. That's in the UK. Mm. That's in America. That's uh, here and all over the world. Young people are being taxed to the point where having a family, buying a house, getting married, all of those things that we in my generation took for granted is becoming uh, economically impossible. And that's already happening. That's with us now. So it's not, there's going to be no threshold moment. The tensions that we're already feeling in our society. And, uh, you, you know, you can go through them all. So the, uh, Marriage rates have dropped like a stone. I mean, literally, it's like a vertical decline. When you get to a certain level on this road to um, total fertility decline, marriage rates fall. The number of women having small families, but the number of women having no families increases. So in Australia now, about one in four women in the workforce will have no children at all. 
all over the world, as far as I'm aware, young people are finding it difficult to uh, manage economically. They did actually a survey in Australia, and they asked them who had it worse, uh, the baby boomers who were around in the 1950s and 60s or the young people of today. And uh, (laughs) maybe it was the profile of the people who were voting in this program, but over 90% responded that uh, the young of today have it worse than the baby boomers did in the 1950s and 60s. And that's because, you know, we tax young people heavily in order to generate the resources to look after the the elderly, amongst other things. And uh, one of the other issues that we have to address in this kind of uh, response to this crisis is a reform of the taxation system. And that's needed across the globe. You can't have young people desperate to uh, try to find a deposit for their first house and get married while the baby boomers are now buying their second beach houses. That's uh, an unsustainable situation. So we need to reform taxation amongst other things. In your book, you know, you clearly lay out there's obviously a change in women being educated, choice, and with 30-40% of women choosing to be childless. And that's one reason for, as you just explained, fertility rates are declining. But what is more shocking, I definitely found more shocking, are all the reasons why fertility is dropping, not out of choice actually because of environmental factors, lifestyle factors that are pretty much unknown to most people. And this is where I feel so passionate about trying to raise awareness because more and more people are not by choice being left childless because of the lack of education around fertility. And I can't wait to really dive into this with you. So firstly, can we look at male fertility male infertility, and I guess the headline catching numbers that write how much sperm count has decreased. How much is sperm count decreasing and how worrying is this? Well, this is a bit like climate change and the discussion we had earlier. The first paper to indicate that there is a global decline in sperm counts was published in 1992. Actually, it wasn't the very first, but it was the first significant paper that pulled together a lot of information from different publications. When those data were presented, it was greeted with pretty much uniform scepticism. Nobody believed it. And thereafter, there were lots and lots of people writing detailed uh, statistical analyses about why this isn't the case. Denial was in full flood for decades, actually. But uh, one person persisted, Shanna Swan, an epidemiologist in New York, and she kept going with this. Uh, She's a very good epidemiologist. She does very good statistical analysis. And she just persisted with this idea and gradually got more and more and more and more data. So now we have quite a lot of data uh, from all over the world suggesting that both East and West, this is not, in the beginning, people said, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a problem just for the uh, affluent West. It's not a problem for everybody else. No, it's a problem for the entire world, East in, in the East and in the West. Sperm counts have halved, halved in the last 50 years from roughly 100 million per mil, and they're now at roughly 50 million per mil. And Shanna has written a book called Countdown, in which she makes the point, just as I described with the declining fertility rates, the slope of the decline in sperm counts shows no signs of abating. 
it just keeps on going down. Whatever it is that's causing this, we're not addressing. And you get to a point <laughs> where uh, it will have an impact on our fertility. And that may be sudden. I said to you earlier, there are probably no threshold moments. But when we get to that moment, when there are just not enough spermatozoa to fertilize eggs, there may be a sudden increase in the levels of infertility that we see. Men were very, very late to acknowledge that they had any role to play in infertility. You know, if you're an infertile woman, it's okay. You can go to a hospital and you can go and talk to a gynecologist who is trained in your discipline and knows everything there is to know about the pathology of the female reproductive system and can help you. There is no equivalent discipline for the male. If a man is infertile, who, where does he go to? So uh, if he's uh, in Canada, he'd probably go to a urologist. If he's in Britain, probably to an obstetrician gynecologist. If he's in Germany, bizarrely, he goes to see a dermatologist. The science of male reproduction, which is called andrology, it's the male equivalent of gynecology, still is not a recognized discipline anywhere. And our knowledge of male reproduction is probably half a century behind our knowledge of female reproduction. We know very little about it. But we do know that male infertility is quite common. Uh, we have virtually no idea why, but uh, it's there. And uh, one of the explanations is that with increased prosperity comes increased environmental pollution. And some of these pollutants in the environment have endocrine properties. They behave a bit like estrogens. They're called xenoestrogens, and they could be responsible for uh, a lot of pathology, actually, uh, something I mentioned in the book. And probably somebody asked me, what was the most frightening graph that I produced when I was researching this book? And uh, I said, well, actually, the most frightening graph is the graph on testicular cancer. So as societies go through the demographic transition, as societies become more prosperous and fertility rates come down and approach that magic number of 2.1, which is where um, you go below replacement, testicular cancer rates go up exponentially. It's like a vertical cliff. And that was very frightening to me because we can all argue about uh, sperm counts and how we measure them and how, how many is enough. And, you know, in principle, you only need one sperm to fertilize an egg. So why, do we, why would we be worried if every male has only got 50 million? But the increase in testicular cancer, now that's real. And it goes hand in hand with the increase in breast cancer in women, the increase in uterine cancer in women. These are all endocrine cancers. And all of these cancers are typical of uh, modern industrialized societies. When I was growing up, nobody knew anybody who had testicular cancer. Now we all know somebody who's had testicular cancer. It's becoming, it is the most common cancer of young men in much of the developed world. So that's very frightening. And it tells us that our environment is polluted and that the regulators, the environmental protection agencies, have lost sight of whatever these pollutants are that are affecting not just our capacity to reproduce, but also pathologies of the reproductive system. What do you mean by endocrine cancers? Like, Why would the disruption to our endocrine system, if we could kind of break that down in more simple terms, that would be helpful? These compounds I'm talking about have estrogen-like properties, okay? So they're, they're like estrogens. Breast cancer, not all breast cancers, but many breast cancers are estrogen dependent. The thing that fuels the growth of the cancer is estrogen. So if you've got more estrogen in the environment, 
then that helps drive that cancer. Sorry, just to be really simple again, estrogen, we're talking about a hormone that is found in the body. It is. It, it, it is. So we, we produce it in a normal, contr- physiologically controlled way. And then along comes uh, the plastics industry and some other industries, and uh, they start making compounds that behave a bit like estrogens, but they escape a lot of the regulatory processes that are involved in normally regulating estrogen action. That's what seems to be happening. And uh, because they are not natural, because they are synthetic, your body has had uh, hundreds of thousands of years to get used to estradiol, the natural estrogen. It's had, uh, you know, less than a century to get used to uh, bisphenol A or phthalate esters or any of these other uh, environmental pollutants. So they kind of escape the mechanisms that the body has generated for regulating the activity of these things in the body. And also the the exposure is not nicely timed. So um, in the case of testicular cancer, this is not, although it's a disease that appears in young men, its cause, its initiation is actually in the womb that the uh, development of the germ cells became poorly programmed. And that created uh, precancerous cells that sit there quite happily during prepubertal development. And then when puberty hits and a message goes forth from the brain to the testis telling the germ cells go forth and multiply, that's the moment when these cells suddenly pick up and uh, take off in a, a very uncontrolled way. Can you give us an example of a plastic or environments that people would be exposed to more of these estrogenic plastics? And is there any studies that actually demonstrate a link between more estrogen and male infertility? These things are everywhere. So the ones I mentioned, bisphenol A and phthalate esters, uh, they are pretty much universal pollutants of environments in economically advanced countries. There are other estrogens. I shouldn't say they're the only ones. There are other estrogens. uh, For example, (laughs) in the rivers of the southeast of England, uh, the fish are actually changing sex because there's so much estrogen in the water. So uh, in the southeast of England in summer, an enormous percentage of the water flowing down the river is actually recycled sewage water. And if you take a cage of male fish and you put them next to a sewage effluent pipe that's flowing into one of these rivers, um, the fish change sex. There is so much estrogen. In this case, it's ethanol estradiol mostly, which is the um, component of the female contraceptive. So there's a lot of it about. And there was a, a, one study published a long time ago now in The Lancet that mapped l- sperm counts in London and showed that your sperm count was highly dependent on the water board that gave you your water supply. Wow. <laughs> so, so when you say, where is it? It's everywhere. Uh, it's everywhere. It's just an aspect of our environments. And uh, we're going to have to work very hard to regulate their levels and the, and the exposure. So do you believe that and do you see the correlation between the uptake of women being prescribed the contraceptive pill and male infertility rates? I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's a direct link there. So we deal with those two things separately. So contraception is really interesting. As I said, uh, You know, it's uh, in one way a tragedy that there have been no new contraceptives since 1959. 
So at that point, when the world's population was growing dramatically, that was the point where we needed to rein it in and control it a bit better. We needed uh, better forms of contraception, but we never got them. And industry ran away from the field. So industry really didn't want to get involved. And the reason for that is just uh, the specification for contraceptives. It's very hard to meet. So contraceptives are the only pharmaceuticals or devices that we give to healthy people. Normally, you give drugs to sick people. And with every drug, there's a risk-benefit equation. Okay, this, this drug may make all your hair fall out, but it will enable you to live for another five years. So, okay, on that balance of risk and equation, risk and benefit, I'll, I'll take the risk. Contraceptives are given to young, healthy people. So it's got to be all benefit and no risk. And that was too hard a specification for the pharmaceutical companies to meet. And so it pulled out. If you look at uh, contraceptive use and um, total fertility rate decline, it's a very sharp correlation coefficient is 0.9 something. So advanced economies, which are suffering from very low rates of fertility, have very high rates of contraceptive use. And this has led some people to say, ha-ha, so there's the reason. It was the increased contraceptive use that led to the low fertility rate. But that's wrong. I can cite a number of examples. So to give you one, uh, in Japan, the pill was illegal, illegal until about 1998 or thereabouts. If you look at the fertility rates in Japan, they were falling like a stone when there was no contraceptives available. The only things available were basically condoms. There was nothing else available. And so the introduction of contraception made no, had no impact at all on total fertility rate decline in Japan. If you look at Albania, I think in Albania, all forms of contraception were banned until the 90s. And again, in Albania, the population dropped like a stone, had nothing to do with the contraception. If you look at the uh, more advanced economies in South America, the strongly Catholic countries, the Colombias, the Venezuelas, the Brazils, and so on, they have very steep declines in their total fertility rate at a time when the Catholic Church was telling them, and it was at a time when people were listening, that um, all forms of unnatural contraception are not blessed by the church and therefore should not be used. And yet still their populations decline. So I think you can't look at contraception as being the cause of population decline, but it is an enabler. It's what you said. Mm. What happens in modern advanced economies is we educate women who quite rightly want to take their place in, in, in the workforce. And when they do that, they have to use contraception in order to control their fertility at a point when they're engaged in career development. So it's an enabling thing. It's not a causative thing. But they are having health consequences, it feels like. Well, the pill, I mean, there are side effects of the pill. And for some groups, if you are obese, if you are a heavy smoker, then the side effects of the oral contraceptive can be significant. A deep vein thrombosis is the thing you have to worry about. But I think the pharmaceutical companies have done a lot to improve the, uh, the compounds that are used in the oral contraceptives, providing you're not smoking heavily and you're not obese. I think the risk-benefit equation is good. For many, many years, I worked on a pill for men. You know, the idea was, well, in a, at least in a married relationship, why shouldn't the, 
both partners benefit from the use of contraception, why shouldn't both partners share the risk? So we tried very hard to produce a male pill, but unsuccessfully. Why was it unsuccessful? I guess fundamentally because um, it's much easier to block the ovulation of one egg a month than to suppress the production of a thousand sperm a second. (laughs) It's just, I made the mistake once on radio saying it was a hard nut to crack, but that's (laughs) that's the truth. You know, it was a very difficult problem. We could get them to, and in some populations they worked. In the Indonesian population, we did trials with the World Health Organization. And uh, in the Indonesian population, male contraception as a pill worked very well. Uh, but most of those subjects were um, on quite a low plane of nutrition and the physical build of your average Indonesian is not as robust as your average Australian. And in Australia, the pill had very poor efficacy. So it's to do with liver metabolism. It's to do with body size. There are all sorts of reasons why this was not a success globally. And in the end, the World Health Organization said, enough is enough. Uh, we can't do this. And they've pulled out. So we are seeing a drop in sperm count, but also we're seeing a massive decline in sperm quality. And they are two slightly different things. And I think what I find so interesting about this is for so many years, men haven't ever been educated about their biological clock. It's been something that has been completely associated with women. You're on a biological clock procreate early, otherwise you're going to lose your ability to have children. Whereas what I find enlightening about your research is that you've proven that men are also on a biological clock and they should also be wanting and needing to produce early to ensure their sperm is as good a quality as it can be. Well, indeed. So uh, in terms of, you know, the mechanics of reproduction, men are hopeless, really. I mean, they, they, they really don't want to engage at all. And I've already talked about how, as a gender, we were very loath to admit that we had any role in uh, in infertility. And so now there's no real specialty to look after us and to do the kinds of things we want to do and to try to find out what the factors are. But we do know some of the things in modern lifestyle factors, environmental factors, that do have an impact on sperm quality. And some of those things are things like smoking. So we know that if you smoke heavily, uh, something, you know, if I talk to you about smoking, you think immediately of diseases of the perpetrator. First thing you think of is lung cancer or uh, heart, coronary heart disease, right? But actually the worst thing with smoking is that the children of men who smoke heavily have something like a four or five-fold increased chance of developing childhood leukemias. When men smoke heavily, they do damage to their spermatozoa, and then that is reflected by an increased rate of um, cancers in their children. And nobody talks about that. And and to me, that's much more insidious than the the, the person who smokes because the sin is being visited on the children as not the actual perpetrator of the smoking. Obesity is another. We know that obesity is very bad for male reproduction. We know that heat is very bad for male reproduction. So not entirely convinced that, uh, you know, modern men's clothing is commensurate with a, a high sperm count. And again, environmental pollutants uh, not only have an impact on uh, sperm number, but they also have an impact on sperm quality. And it's very easy to demonstrate this uh, incontrovertibly 
in animal models. In animal models, as you expose animals, mice, to uh, these kinds of environmental toxicants, then not only their sperm counts go down, but the quality of their sperm also deteriorates. So uh, a lot of the damage is done by a process known as oxidative stress, and I have spent uh, more years than I care to remember studying this process and the kind of triggers there are for oxidative stress in the male reproductive system. And gradually, we are coming to terms with the idea of using antioxidants to try to improve male reproduction. But still, uh, no decent clinical trials have been done. It's a very frustrating area. (laughs) So you're absolutely right. You know, men need educating as much as women when it comes to their reproduction. And you mentioned this briefly before, but I think it's a very important point to make. And that is that uh, we do need a massive increase in the uh, quality and level of sex education for young people in our society. Uh, Still, I think too much of uh, sex education is buried in Victorian times when that the kind of ethos was, well, you know, if man even comes within the proximity of the woman, conception is going to occur. You know, the emphasis was all about preventing teenage pregnancies, which is, you know, a a good thing to do. I'm not saying it's not. But what got lost in that argument, people thought that fertility was the enemy and that we had to use contraception to control fertility. Um, But in fact, fertility is, uh, I think in the book, I say it's kind of... Uh, People think it's a tap you can turn on and off, but actually it's a flower that uh, briefly blooms and then is forever lost. So (laughs) it's something we have to take care of. Uh, We can't take it for granted. And people are not aware of that. And there have been some very moving stories uh, written by women who get to that point in life in their mid-30s to discover that the baby they they were planning and they were going to have it then didn't actually happen. And why didn't somebody tell them? Where was the information that this was not a a done deal? And I see now increasingly young women having their eggs frozen as a buffer against uh, the impact of age on female reproduction. And indeed, some companies like Google and Facebook offering this as a service to their young female employees. But again, there's no guarantee there that uh, those eggs, when thawed out, will generate babies. So you have to be realistic about what is happening there and what really needs to happen And this is a core theme of the book, is we've got to stop swimming against the tide of our biology. We've just got to wake up to what our biology is. You know, we can change many things about the society we live in. Uh, The one thing we cannot change is our fundamental biology. And uh, for whatever reason, we're a very unusual species that stops reproducing in midlife. No no other species or very few other species do that. Uh, Your average uh, feral wallaby or um, laboratory rat will reproduce until the day they die. But we're not like that. Uh, We invest so much time and effort in the rearing of our children that um, we, uh, nature has provided us with a narrow window to have children. And then the rest of our life is spent in, you know, postnatal care of those offspring. So we've just got to wake up to the fact that that is, that that is the thing. And we've got to adjust society to accommodate that biology. We can't change our biology or hope that our biology can be changed in order to suit our social needs. That isn't going to happen. So what we need are things like improved parental leave scheme. We need to encourage young people, provide them with the resources to enable them to have children earlier. So it's, they're not leaving it until the last possible moment to have children. 
We need to provide them with the resources to get married, buy a house, have kids, do all the normal stuff and not tax them out of existence and work them to the bone (laughs) because the rest of society is aging and needs the resources to survive. So, yeah, a lot of uh, political economic uh, rethinking needs to be done to accommodate that. From a cultural perspective, I do think that we are obviously fed quite a lot of magical thinking, and you do address this. And I'm going to come on to women's fertility in a moment. But for example, to finish off on male fertility problems, we all see a rock star at the age of 70 have a baby, and then we assume that men can have children and healthy children for their entire life. But actually, this isn't true. What age do sperm start to massively reduce their quality? That's a great question. And uh, there is, it is kind of unfair. Uh, I don't think, you know, biology wasn't being uh, very equal handed when it handed out uh, the design of the reproductive system. But in women, fertility collapses over a five-year window, 35 to 40, basically, that's when it starts to go down very rapidly. In men, it goes down, but it goes down very slowly. So um, there is no precipitous decline like there is in women. Sperm counts and fertility will decline gradually. There are men who produce children in their 90s. That's, you know, that's a biological fact. But the quality isn't. Yes, no, that's true. What My point here, though, is that we've got men are on a biological clock because the chance of them having a Down syndrome child, for example, goes massively up after the age of 35, if I'm not wrong. Uh, No. So Down syndrome, uh, both male and female aging are involved in Down syndrome babies. Mostly it's female in that case. But there are other conditions like uh, achondroplasia, dwarfism, APERS syndrome, a lot of dominant genetic diseases that are highly correlated with the age of the father at the moment of conception. And we've recently become aware that uh, neuropsychiatric disorders, spontaneous schizophrenia, bipolar disease, attention deficit disorder, epilepsy, all of these conditions are highly tied to the age of the father at the moment of conception. So you're quite right to draw this out. So as men age, they don't stop producing sperm precipitously, like women stop ovulating eggs. Uh, Their fertility does go down, but as it's going down, uh, the incidence of genetic disease in their offspring goes up. So there is a biological clock for them too. You're quite right to point that out. And I think that's important because I think another crisis we're seeing is there's lots of women that potentially want to have children, but their counterpart, their male counterparts, assume that they can wait another decade, two decades. And I think they're also, well, they're being misled in thinking that. Yeah. No, I I think men's knowledge of their own reproductive system is uh, shocking very bad. And many men would not be aware that the older they get, the more likely it is that there will be a genetic disease in their children. The incidence of those genetic diseases, whether it's spontaneous schizophrenia or dwarfism, is you know reassuringly low. But nevertheless, if you look at the rate of increase with paternal age, it goes up very rapidly. And it's a very consistent finding. So uh, as we get older, the um, number of mutations in the male germline increases. And some of those mutations, it's a very interesting piece of biology, but some of those mutations confer upon the germ cell where that mutation occurred, a selective advantage, and they literally explode. They have a little colony expansion in a testis of a 70-year-old or 75-year-old male. 
uh, you will see little islands of mutant germ cells, each one of which is capable of producing a child with uh, achondroplasia or uh, Apert syndrome. So a very interesting piece of biology, but uh, your fundamental point is quite correct, that as men age, their chances of producing a fit and healthy child diminish. And the same is true of the female. And in many ways, and there are good biological reasons for this, uh, the health of our children is a collusion between the male and the female. So the male may have terrible sperm, but if his wife has wonderful eggs, they will, they will repair all the damage in the sperm cells. Conversely, uh, the eggs may be terrible at repair, but the young male may have very little damage in his sperm cells. So there is always this kind of cooperation between the males and the females in order to uh, do the best we can for the offspring. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So to move on to women's infertility and fertility cycle, I guess, again, there's a lot of competing arguments around this. Is it true that after 35, a woman's fertility kind of falls off a cliff or is that too simplistic? No, that's true. It does. So after the age of 35, uh, you just have to look, just get the statistics out for the live birth rates after IVF. You really want to see that. So uh, after the age of 35, there is a very steep decline in female fertility over a five-year window. And then by the age of 41, 42, your chances of conceiving are now less than 5%. Of course, there are outliers. And I know that there are journalists who are female and they belong to that outlier population and they had children in their 40s and they said this is all a big hoax created by males working in the IVF industry. Well, no, that's not true. You just have to look at the statistics. And it goes back to what I said, you know, you cannot compete with your biology. So if you look at a hunter-gatherer woman living in the Kalahari Desert, living life as nature intended, as it were, she will have her first child when she is 19 years old, which is when women are their most fertile. They're, at most, they're most fertile somewhere between the ages of 18 and 20. She will have her first child when she's 19. Life will then be an alternating sequence of pregnancy and lactation, lactation and menorrhea. So when you're breastfeeding your baby, you can't ovulate. 
And uh, by the age of 30, they're done. They've had five children, which is what they need to survive in the Kalahari Desert. And then they stop reproducing. And that's just when the uh, women in London and uh, Sydney are thinking about having their first child. So they are, for social reasons, uh, living in denial of biology and trying to postpone the childbearing years to the point where nature says this should all be over by now. I mean, it's easy for me to say this, but it, there is this, this interesting competition between what our fundamental biology that evolved over hundreds of thousands of years, what it evolved and to enable us to survive in some of the harshest uh, environments on the planet and colonize them in the way that we have, amazingly, to trying to adjust all of that to meet the social needs that have occurred in the last half century. Why do you think female fertility is declining? ovarian reserve, AMH levels? I'm not sure that the evidence is strong that fecundity, so you have to distinguish two terms and they're very important to distinguish, the fertility and fecundity. Fertility is the chances that you will ever have a child and fecundity is your uh, chances of having a child in any given menstrual cycle, so your, your potential for having children, not the actual number of children you have. It's very easy to measure fertility rates. We do that all the time, and you can easily calculate number of children that each woman will have in a lifetime. But to ask the question, has female fecundity, that is, their ability to have children deteriorated over time, we honestly don't have the methods to really determine that. We do know that uh, a lot of women are... You know, we talked about 35 to 40 being the age when most women suffer... A dramatic loss of ovulation potential in their ovaries. But for some women who have small numbers of eggs, ovarian reserves, that timing is a lot earlier. So we shouldn't imagine that all women are going to suddenly at the age of 35. For some women, it's when they're 30 or 25, uh, if they've got a small ovarian reserve. So it's very difficult to uh, be certain. We do have some instruments now. You mentioned AMH. So, you know, we do have ways of trying to predict what the ovarian reserve is. And I think it would be a good idea for young girls to have a knowledge of what that number is so that they can make their own decisions about how they're going to live out their reproductive lives. And is it mostly genetically driven, declining ovarian reserve numbers, or do you also attribute lifestyle factors? And if so, which ones? Usually, first of all, these things are very difficult to tease out. And uh, mostly we would say, well, it's a combination probably of both. Genetics is having uh, a larger impact on human reproduction than you might imagine. So when I say to a geneticist, you know, I, I think we're looking at a large amount of genetic reasons for infertility. They don't understand that because the whole point of evolution, and the whole point of natural selection is that uh, only fertile people can pass their genes on into the next generation. You can't select for a gene that causes uh, infertility, obviously, because uh, if you have that gene, you don't have any children. So uh, a classic case, and it's the most common genetic cause of male infertility, are Y chromosome deletion. So a bit of the Y chromosome is missing. And that happens spontaneously in the germline of the father. So the father is perfectly fertile, but the son then is sterile. And at that moment, that lineage stops you can't go any further. There's no capacity to repair that genetic damage 
it goes, uh, it's, it's forever lost. So th those kind of things and a lot of other examples of single gene defects having an impact on male and female reproduction, I think are telling us that in modern industrialized society, we are not uh, selecting for great fertility anymore. So when we were a hunter-gatherer in Neolithic times, we had an average of seven or eight children because, well, frankly, most of them were going to die. And so under those conditions, you're always selecting for people who have high fertility genotypes because you have to be capable of having eight children in order for one or two to survive and pass your genes on into the next generation. That's what defines reproductive fitness. And if you were only capable of uh, having 1.7 children, which is what you know it is in Australia now, uh, your lineage would not have lasted long because you'd have your 1.7 children and they both would have died and that would be the end of you. But then you move forward a few millennia and um, we are where we are now, where there's no selection pressure on fertility, none. And the result is you're seeing the accumulation of poor fertility genotypes in the population because we've got nothing to weed out the bad ones. And then a point I make in the book is that if we keep on using IVF as a default treatment for all kinds of infertility, a bad situation is just going to get worse. Because if you start to use that technology at scale, and in some countries now, like Denmark, 10% of the population being generated by IVF, right? And the graph is inexorably upwards. So it's going to be 15% in the near future. If that continues to happen, uh, what IVF will do is um, generate a situation where more and more bad fertility genes are retained within the population because you've enabled those people that would have been, if you like, weeded out by natural selection to now have children through the use of assisted uh, conception therapy. So it's a warning to all governments out there. The more you use IVF in one generation, the more you're going to need it in the next. If you think <laughs> that your assisted conception budget is high now, it's going to be worse in the generations to come. And there are real issues there about uh, equity of access. I know we, you can't live in a society where only the rich can reproduce. But in many countries now, that's exactly what the situation is. So I've just frozen my eggs and I was horrified by how much it cost. And I guess this is what's led me into my interest in this area. And in the book, you really do talk about how deeply unequal this situation could become. Is it a solution, do you think, for governments to start covering egg freezing, sperm freezing costs? Or what are your thoughts there? Well, I think governments have to wake up to the fact that there is in our reproductive health crisis, and not just leave it to the private sector to provide all the answers for us. And when I say, you know, countries like Denmark have 10% of their population generated by IVF, it's because Scandinavian countries in general are very generous in their provision of uh, reproductive health services. And that's why they are taken up so, so readily. Whereas in America, very few people can afford to take up the assisted reproduction services. And so they're much less used than they would otherwise be. So I think governments have to become aware that this is happening. I think, uh, Improving uh, technology is certainly part of the answer. Egg freezing, sperm freezing, embryo freezing, these are all things that we should be uh, looking into. But rather than try to solve the problem technically, 
uh, we should also think of ways that we can solve it socially. I mean, just if we could just acknowledge that this is happening to us and that we have to find ways of uh, better organising our society so that we're not conflicting with our biology all the time, where we can encourage young people to have children earlier and not suffer any disadvantage in terms of their career development, then that would be great. We are in this crisis situation now because uh, this really is crisis management at this point. Uh, We're not sort of thinking this through or even acknowledging that there's a problem to think through. I hope if I do anything through these kind of, through writing the book and doing these kind of podcasts, I just awaken people's interest in the reproductive process and understand that this is not something we can take for granted and is something that we have to manage carefully. Has there been any successful pronatalist policies that you've seen activated in different countries? Actually, we had a good one in Australia. So we had uh, a very far-sighted Chancellor of the Exchequer, Peter Costello, and uh, he realised early on, and in, I guess in Australia it's easy to see this. So, so we have we've had below replacement fertility rates for a long period of time, and yet we're a country that's uh, desperately trying to expand its population. He realised we couldn't do this by immigration all the time, so he introduced a baby bonus. He said, "Okay, I want everybody to have three children: one for mum, one for dad, and one for the country." And uh, he produced a financial incentive. People have children and the fertility rate went up. The graph was, I told you that all these graphs go inexorably downwards. The one exception was Australia, where suddenly it picked up. The Australian people listened and uh, they took the baby bonus and they had children. And then in about, I think, 2014, another government came in. They took the baby bonus away and again, fertility fell off a cliff. <laughs> okay, not paying us to have any kids. We're not going to have any. So it's a short blip in the otherwise inexorable decline. But it told me that actually, if you provide financial incentives, people will listen. People don't listen to governmental edicts. I've already told you that uh, China has had one child family policies, two child family policies, three child family policies. And the response from the Chinese people has been nothing. I read a very interesting article written by somebody called Feng recently. He came up with a lovely quote, which is that uh, it is not the Chinese government that has determined the shape of the Chinese population. It is the Chinese people. Mm. So you can't tell people what to do. Uh, The only thing you can do is to incentivize good behaviors and uh, providing Scandinavian style parental support schemes providing baby bonuses, these kinds of incentives, I think, uh, work, uh, re- re, uh, casting the tax system so we don't put the entire tax burden on the, the young and productive and spread it out a bit more generally over the entire population. I think all those things are measures that we should be engaging in. One of the things I think we have begun, and it's a very interesting philosophical debate, but when I was growing up, you know, life was all about having children. You either had a, you know, a, a religious purpose to life or you had a procreative purpose to life or often those two were intertwined. But that's all gone now. We live in an increasingly secular society and we live in a society where childlessness is accepted and respected and people can make up their own minds whether they want to have children. There's no stigma attached to not having children, which is exactly how it should be. But if people do want to have kids, then we should uh, provide all the resources they need to do that and provide them with uh, a safe environment. Often the trouble with incentives, though, is they'll, uh, okay, we'll give you an extra 500 pounds or dollars, whatever it is, to have a child. 
Um, but of course, that's very nice to have on the day of the birth. But the cost of actually having and rearing and educating increasingly in modern societies, children bears no relationship to the kind of baby bonus you got. So there are bigger issues there economically as well. And childcare costs and, and the childcare being a, a huge factor. Again, the fact that we don't support childcare costs is because we're still not recognising the crisis that we're in. We're still not recognising that we actually have to work hard now to encourage young couples, women and men, to have families uh, earlier. And part of the, that encouragement should be better childcare, absolutely. That should be provided free by the state as just part of the way that society supports its population. One metaphor, I guess, uh, you use to describe why perhaps fertility is declining is using the idea of racehorses. Can you explain that a bit more? Because I found that really interesting as to kind of why some bodies are reducing their fertility without knowing it's happening. Well, I've said before that uh, what's happened to our species is that we've taken the selection pressure off fertility. So when we were in Neolithic times, life was nasty, brutish, and short. And uh, you had to have a lot of children in order for your genotype to survive. And what's happened in modern society is we kind of divorce uh, having children from survival. They're not, they're not codependent anymore. And exactly the same thing happens in the livestock breeding industry. So, you know, domestic animals don't have to reproduce to survive. But the trouble with domestic animals is we tend to select them for very specific purposes. And uh, two of the uh, examples I, I talked about in the book were milk yield for dairy cattle and uh, something I work a lot on are thoroughbred horses. Uh, we do a lot of work on the fertility of thoroughbred horses because in both of those cases, you select for one thing. You know, the average cow produces a ridiculous amount of milk I mean, it's really at the edge of what's biologically possible. And if we didn't milk the cows every day, they would die. So, you know, they, they have been so taken outside of their natural biological environment, they're now entirely dependent on us to milk them. But if you, when you select your animal for milk yield, you're not selecting it for fertility. And the result is, if you don't select for something, you lose it. So just as uh, our, the human race with a lack of selection pressure has lost fertility, so dairy cattle have, and so are thoroughbred horses. And there are some very famous examples of thoroughbred horses that won uh, every race going. And yet when they put them out to stud, they turned out to be totally sterile. So you can't just select for one trait that you're interested in and, and, and then just ignore fertility and hope it's going to be okay because often it isn't. And uh, there is a world of difference between your physical appearance and your reproductive health. Those two things are not synonymous with one another. I remember when I used to work in Edinburgh and worked in an infertility clinic, one of the first males I came across was actually a rugby international. And he said, you know, I can't be infertile. Look at me. And, you know, he was six foot two of rippling muscle. But I said, you know, well, unfortunately, uh, your muscles don't understand uh, where your germ cells are at and vice versa. So there's, there's no correlation between those two things. Going to the gym every day is a good thing for your overall health, but it may mean nothing in terms of your reproductive fitness. They are two separate things. So 
Yeah, just as in domestic animals, if we don't select for something, we lose it. And that's what's happening to us as a species as we go forward. You know, a message that I received is tracking our fertility. Let's say we had greater access to tools to check in with our fertility, men and women. This is a great biomarker for longevity and health overall, right? Not just for the pure purposes of reproduction. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, there are quite a lot of data now um, suggesting that um, in men, at least, you're, I don't know the data so much for women because women reproductive health is much more difficult to measure than male. In males, it's easy. You just go measure sperm counts. And um, if you have poor semen quality, other aspects of your health trajectory are likely to suffer. And so people talk about the canary in the coal mine. That if you just uh, looked at what was going wrong with the sperm cells, uh, you would learn something about the overall health of the individual and it would be reflective of what's going to happen to their health trajectory going forward. So I think these are important arguments and uh, another reason why we should take reproductive health seriously because it can be a window on some other aspects of your health trajectory. My last question, to summarise, what message do you really hope men, women and governments globally take away? The messages I would give to governments and individuals is a bit different, I think. So if I'm, a gov- if I'm talking to governments, I would say, look, there is a global change that's going on. And it's a global change. And we're all part of this. And uh, your philosophy going forward of uh, encouraging immigrants to come to our shores will work for a few years, but it's not a long term solution. And in the end, you have to come up with methods to encourage the young people in your societies to have children earlier and uh, enable women to have families and engage in the professional career development with no impediment. They should be fully supported. So this is an equality argument, but it's more than that. It's, it's something which, as you rightly say, actually pertains to the future of our entire species. And I repeat that all countries are on the same journey. Just some are at the end of that journey not not at the end, but they're at a very critical time towards the end, and their populations are already declining very rapidly, like Taiwan, for example, and some are right at the beginning, like some of the countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but we're all on the same journey. So it's something we're all going to have to come to terms with. Like climate change, this is a slow process. It takes place over decades, but that's no reason not to engage with it. And then for individuals, I would say, yes, please don't take your reproductive health for granted. This is something uh, both men and women have to look after. If you want to have children, it's important for you to look after your reproductive health and make sure you don't do things that are going to uh, damage your reproductive health. And if you don't want to have children, that's fine too. Uh, So that's whatever life course you choose should make no difference. It's just if we enabled people to have the children they want, the number they want, when they want them, there will be no crisis. We just have to give people the opportunity to make that choice. And currently they're being denied that choice because of this uh, enormous gap between our biological development and our social development, basically. And we just need to bring those two worlds together. Uh, And those people should look after the environment too. There's a climate change debate and there's a sort of reproductive debate, but these are both really parts of the same debate. And uh, part of the uh, environmental 
component of all of this is advanced industrial communities are very polluted. And that's one of the contributions to declining reproductive health. So that's something else that governments should be taking care of. This is important. John, thank you so much for this fascinating interview. I'm so grateful. Where is the best place for people to find you if they've got any further questions? Unfortunately, I'm not great with social media. I belong to the generation that didn't really engage with social media. <laughs> so uh, you can, if you look me up on the web, you'll find my email address very easily, and I do respond to emails. So um, people, very, I'm very happy to hear from anybody who's got a comment. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker, a skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.